Today's message, God's sovereign salvation plan, is what we're going to tackle in a minute. But I have to back up just for a moment because I want to, I want to make it clear to you, if this is painfully clear, your preacher is capable of making mistakes. Big ones. So I want to highlight one of those that was brought to my attention two weeks ago after I delivered the message. Now let me explain to you what my world looks like on a regular basis. Inside the prison, I have things that I, have to, I never seem to get done. I've got, there's one stack of papers about that thick that I've got to get through, and there's always more coming through. The more I interact with individuals, the more work has to be done. Lots of paperwork. But at any given time, I interact with individuals. They come see me, I go see them. When they come see me and I'm focused on a project or getting the paperwork done, I, got, I take care of them. So I'm distracted. That happens. My world is a lot of multitasking. In case you don't know, none of us are, are good at, um, what do they call that when you're doing multiple things at once? Yeah. We're not... None of us are good at it. Um, we, just, we just get distracted. And so I do that, too. So when I do my message and you see scriptures go up behind me, please bring your Bibles and let other people see you opening your Bibles. It's very helpful. So I've traveled. I, got, I, got, I get to teach in other countries sometimes, but I've traveled in the States, too. And I'm considered by some people as an expert in eschatology. So I, I've got to go and talk to... Uh, board of elders at one church because they were struggling, they were arguing over this stuff. So I got to go in and help them figure it out. So the real authority on anything biblical is God. It's right here in this book. It's not anybody, not me. So I do know this. Let me show you up behind me this screen. This is of uh, the books of Revelation. I, I know these. And as I was preparing for the message a couple of weeks ago, you know, you start preparing, and I'm, I'm excited about it. I love preparing. I love delivering. And as I'm doing that, I'm taking Scripture, and I copy and paste, and I put the, the Scripture references there myself. And I was doing some research, and I don't know if you know this, but the church that we talked about then, besides Colossae, was Laodicea. In the church in Laodicea, I actually used to sing. I don't do it anymore, like sing song specials and stuff. I used to lead worship. I'm not good at it, so that's why I don't do it anymore. But there was a song, and it's called Living in Laodicea. It's a really cool song. I know about Laodicea. Laodicea is the church that Jesus talked about. He said, you make me want to puke. He said, I just want to spew you out of my mouth. And the reason why he mentioned that is because they were lukewarm. They, they, didn't have, they couldn't make up their mind if they were going to be all the way for Jesus or all the way against him. He would rather them be one or the other, not wishy-washy. They're riding the fence. They're fence riders. In the church in Laodicea, he gave this description in Revelation of how he just wants to spew them out of his mouth. Make, you make me want to puke. And the reason why he gave that, that they can understand it. You're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. Stephanie and I visited a town uh, in, where is that, French Lick, 
Indiana. You know, Larry yeah, Larry Bird's hometown. There's also something else. Do you know what else is there? <laughs> there is, used to be, I forget what it was, like one of the seven wonders of the world. They, they, they had that listed. There is a dome structure there that was built a long time ago, and it's the still to this day the largest freestanding dome structure in, I think, the United States, maybe the world. It, it's not fastened to the building. It's a giant coliseum type thing, and it's, they don't use it for anything anymore. It, it, but it's, it's just sitting on top. It's heavy. It's made of concrete and stuff like that. But they just have shackles that are lightly over little areas that, that can hold it so it won't slide off, but it's not connected. And that's so because it's such a huge structure, they know that it's going to expand and contract with the temperature. So they allow it, just like bridges have those expansion joints. They just designed this so that it could expand and contract without causing structural damage to any of the building. There used to be a large track where they actually raced horses and people. It was two-story, a two-story racetrack. Why did people go there? Because they had a bunch of sulfur springs there. Anybody ever drink sulfur water? Some of the nastiest stuff you could ever put in your mouth. If you drink it cold, you can get it down. Stephanie grew up drinking that. Her whole town, that's, that's, that's sulfur water. And it's, like, it's, like this, it's like the smell and flavor of a hard-boiled egg. You just don't want to drink that. Now, if you drink it hot, you can also do that. It's easy to get down if it's hot or cold. But if you just take that and drink it slightly warm, that is nasty. You, your mind almost imagines that you're drinking it's slimy, like it's thicker, just because it's so nasty. But people would go, they would travel from around the world to get to French Lick, Indiana, because it had healing properties. But you don't want to drink it lukewarm. So in the town of Laodicea, there's a river that runs through that is fed by hot springs. And by the time it gets through to Laodicea and goes on through, it has warmed. And so their water supply was lukewarm egg water. So they understood what it means. You, you make me want to spew you out of my mouth. You're just like that water you have to drink. So the problem is, I, didn't, I wanted to talk to you about all that. And then as I looked at my scripture that I had copied and pasted, like, wait a minute. We're talk I thought, okay, I guess Laodicea is not the one that was spew you out of my, my mouth. I guess it's the one that forsaken, forsaken your first love. I thought that was Ephesus, but well, I got it right here in my scripture. My problem, I didn't go back and check that the references I had typed in myself were incorrect. I had copied and pasted and gave it the reference, the right reference, but it was the wrong church. Oops, it's my mistake. Some of you caught it and told me about it. Some of you didn't. So I encourage you, use this as your final source of authority because the preacher sometimes gets things wrong, and I did. All right. So now that we've straightened that out, thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. You should be skeptical of everything else that ever comes out of my mouth. So check me on everything. All right. Now I want to go ahead and give you a little thing that somebody, a friend of mine posted. And this was done in innocence, but in frustration. 
So this is a social media post I want to show to you. And I'm not sure if you can read it very well. I'll read it out loud. How does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? No baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no speaking in tongues, no mission trip, no volunteerism, and no church clothes. He couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He didn't say the sinner's prayer, and among other things, he was a thief. Jesus didn't take away his pain, heal his body, or smite the scoffers. Yet, it was a thief who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus simply by believing. He had nothing more to offer other than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. No spin from brilliant theologians, no ego or arrogance, no shiny lights, skinny jeans or crafty words, no haze machine, donuts or coffee in the entrance, just a naked dying man on a cross, unable to even fold his hands to pray. This is, I don't know if you can tell, but whoever wrote this had a lot of pinned up frustration. And there's a little attacks in there. I don't know if you caught that, little, little attacks on things. And we're going to get to the thief on the cross in a little bit because that comes up. So we're going to talk about it. But today's message being God's sovereign salvation plan, I'm going to tell you the main thing we're going to do is we're going to focus on an element that we tend to leave out. And I will tell you up front that there are people when they hear this who will not want to hear it. There have been people who have been here and were very adamantly supportive of what we were doing as a church. And when they heard what you're going to hear today, they left very angry because they don't believe that part of what the Bible says. And there may be people here who don't like what you're going to hear today. And the reality is, I, I really do care because I, every one of you I know, and I've, I've grown, you've grown on me. I love each one of you. I hope you feel that because that's for real. So I do care. Second opinions are good to get in every case except when it comes to the Bible. You don't need a second opinion about this. All you need is this. Go with this, and you're good. That's what we're going to do. And when I preach, even though I may fail in getting the references correct up here, and even misalign a church, I will do my best to point you back to the Bible, which is what I'm going to attempt to do today. So let's jump into our text, because it's what mandates that we do what we do. Therefore... As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, let's just look at this little piece by piece. It starts with therefore. Why does it start with therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? Because the last time we talked about the passage that was just before this, we discovered the mystery, this grand mystery, is that Jesus died for you and me. That's the main thing. And the kind of hope that a person who accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior and lives for him has is not really that explainable. The kind of peace that we have, you can't really tell people all about it until they experience it. And that's a mystery. And the mystery to solve life's mysteries you need Jesus. That's the mystery. Jesus is the solution to life. Therefore, 
as you received Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Now that's important to note. So walk in him. What's that about? Well, <laughs> it's about living the life a Christian is supposed to live. It's not about being perfect and not making mistakes. It's about living as Jesus is your Lord. He is number one. You live for him. I'm going to give you some scripture that might help support this. And I'm going to start with words from Jesus himself. And we've brought this up before. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, it says, Why do you call, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He seems to be extremely frustrated as he says this. Why? You call me Lord and don't do what I tell you to do? Then I'm, you understand the implication. You're not, I'm not your Lord if you aren't serving me. If you don't do what I tell you, then I'm not your Lord. That's the implication, is it not? So Jesus continues, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? We'll read the rest of it. Next slide, please. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. Yet when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Remember that story. It's not about build your house on the rock that is Jesus. It's about build your house on the rock that is doing what Jesus said. That's the whole point of that whole story that we miss so much. You want to build your house on a rock? Build your house on Jesus' words, doing what he said. Not just listening. That's the whole point of this analogy. Okay, so I want to also take you to another passage, Jesus speaking again in John chapter 15, verse 14. And it says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. <laughs> you. So what if, you're, what if you don't do what he commands you? You're not Jesus' friend. You understand, right? There's an if. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What if you don't? Well, then. You're not his friend. You want to be Jesus' friend? <laughs> and I want to read to you from James chapter 2, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's a reason why God inspired Paul to write what he wrote in this passage. We'll look at it again in Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 6. We've already read it, but I want to read it again. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So in other words, we're supposed to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now I want to show you another social media post that popped up this week that was really good. Look at this. Repetitive complaining will attract things for you to complain about. Re repeated gratitude will attract things for you to be thankful about. 
And that's what Paul is telling us. We're supposed to be abounding in thanksgiving. So try to constantly find things to be thankful about because that's magnetic to more things to be thankful about. Your mind, when you do that, your mind will find even more and find even more. And guess what? When you're around other people, that becomes contagious. All right, so let's go back into the text and we'll continue reading. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, why would God see fit that we need to be told to be careful that other people don't deceive us? Is it possible we might be deceived? Of course. That's why he's telling us this. And he's specifically saying captive philosophy. We're not supposed to be held captive by philosophy because there's, there's sometimes you can get in these conversations, and one of them is Calvinism. Calvinism, I just recently had a conversation with a guy, and we're talking about Calvinism, and I had to, he's very, very smart, and he understands Calvinism through and through, and he's a diehard supporter of Calvinism. I am not. I, I think John Calvin will be in heaven, even though he had somebody killed for disagreeing with him. I still think he's going to be in heaven. I think he was a godly man. He was just misdirected. But I asked this Calvinistic man, I asked him, who's so smart and so entrenched, I said, what, what, benefit, it, what benefit is it to anyone that you hang on to the tenets of Calvinism? How does it benefit anyone, including you? And he couldn't give me an answer. Because it just basically makes for good theological debate. That's about it. And when it comes to the Christian life, anything he knew that he would bring up to me in Calvinism would actually lead people to sin. That's why I don't like Calvinism. It doesn't align with Scripture, and it leads to sin. So I'm not buying into it. So don't let anybody deceive you, you know, with, by trying to captivate you with philosophy or using empty deceit, pointless deceit, according to human tradition. Now that is purposeful because Paul is going to launch into a concept that is perfect for us to bring up with no kids in the room. We're going to. Because there is a tradition that was permeating the, the church in the first century. It doesn't really do that so much today, but we'll address it. According to the elemental spirits of the world, now that's an interesting thing, because there's three different times that terms are used here that, that could be confusing. Each time it brings up these words like elemental spirits or rulers and authority, today he's not talking about government. He's talking about evil spirits. Not according to Christ. So these are in contrast with what Christ wants. There are people that will deceive us. There, were, there are people that will hold us captive with philosophy that's in complete conflict with Christianity. It's antithetical to what we're supposed to believe. Okay. And we will get into that. M- moving on in the next passage. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells 
bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, your translations vary on these, the way they choose to translate some of these words. I really like the English Standard Version this morning in this as we're looking at it up behind me because it chooses to translate the words contextually. So it's choosing, the translators chose to read the whole context and translate the words based on the context so they actually align much, much better. So if you're having problems with your translation, at some point in time, grab an English Standard Version in this particular passage. That is a good translation. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus fully encapsulated the deity of God. And you have been filled in him. So you, too, share in his glory and honor who is the head of all rule and authority. So understand, all these deceitful spirits, Jesus is over all of that, above it. All right. So now we're going to get into the little bit of uncomfortable concept to speak on when children are in the room. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, the subject that's uncomfortable to talk about with kids in the room is circumcision, and you can understand why. I was in seminary when we were in a class and the subject came up and a very naive freshman raised her hand and asked the question, what is circumcision? And the professor proceeded to draw on the board and explain it. I'm not going to do that today for you. There's no pictures. We're not doing that. But I can tell you that uh, this has really very little to do with physical circumcision. This is an analogy connecting it to baptism, but Paul is doing this because what permeated the first century church is, see, what happens is you understand there are scripture, there's many passages that tell us we have to be careful with our doctrine. First Timothy 4.16 is one of them. But if you get really good at doctrine, you got to be careful that you don't become legalistic. There are some churches that are really good at doctrine, but they're so legalistic that they're not practical or effective. So you got to be careful. And what happened in the first century church is people thought they were being so good at doctrine, they became so legalistic, and they began to impose things on people that God did not want. The old covenant circumcision was a thing. New covenant, it's not. But you can even see it play out in the book of Acts where Paul was compelled to do two different things in almost identical circumstances, where one of his, one of his uh, evangelists that he had trained, Timothy, and another, Titus, were in a similar situations. People were compelling one to be circumcised in one particular circumstance, and Paul stood up and said, do not let this happen. 
This is wrong. This is not what God wants. This is not something in the new covenant you have to do. It's not required. And then in the other circumstance, with the other evangelist, Paul said, we need to do this because if we don't, it's going to be a difficult thing ministering to the people we're ministering to. Two different circumstances, but neither time did Paul say, it's a new covenant thing, you must do it. He said it's not. And one time he had to put his foot down and say no, and the other time he had to say, we need to do this so it doesn't become a hindrance for our ministry. So, this circumcision, what happens is people in restoration churches, if you don't know, that's what this kind of church is. It's got a wonderful history. You should read about it if you don't know. But in, in restoration churches, we do use an analogy of circumcision and say, well, see, it's, baptism is much like circumcision. I would argue that baptism is somewhat like circumcision. It's not much like because there's a big problem with that. Only the males were circumcised. Are only the males baptized? No. No, and it's, it, it, there's, it's got a lot of differences. And analogies are always flawed, but this is a biblical analogy we're looking at today. As the church is being compelled in the first century to impose upon its members circumcision. Paul is saying, don't, don't buy into that. There is a, a different concept you need to buy into. So you can see what he's talking about. It's not, he's talking about the circumcision of Christ is not, it says it real clear, it's not with your hands. It's not physical. So this idea is you're putting off, like in circumcision, you're putting off the flesh. In baptism, similarly, you're putting off the flesh. The old is going away. And he specifically gives us this analogy of a death, burial, and resurrection. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Now, I have in my, not on me, but in my possession, I own an 1810 Liddell Scott Greek Dictionary. It's been bound and rebound, and at this point in time, I don't like to open it. Because when I open it, the pages break. It's very old. And I did open it for one particular big reason. I wanted to know, because I don't know if you notice, as time goes on, we, we give new meanings to our words as you know, we redefine things. I wanted to know, what did the word be, mean, baptism, when Christians got a hold of it and started using it? When John the Baptist started baptizing, and when, when, when it was written down in the Bible in Koine Greek, what did this word mean? So I looked it up in the Liddell Scott Greek Dictionary, and I looked at the etymology and went back prior to the Christian's use of the word. And the word baptize or baptizo was a military term. When a captain would pull up alongside another ship, he would yell out, Baptizo! I sink it. That's what it meant. He would give the command to sink the other ship. So when you read Paul's writings right here about a death, burial, and resurrection, you understand this idea of baptism being a violent death in the water. They already connected the dots. They already knew. 
The old self is dying. That's the circumcision analogy, put off the flesh. The old self is dying. I am putting my past in my past. I'm starting new. That's what this analogy is. Been, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, coming up out of the water. That's why sprinkling and pouring does not work as a mode of baptism. It, it wasn't, wasn't until 753 A.D. that the first time the, uh, any church officially recognized sprinkling or pouring as a mode of baptism came, came to be acknowledged. That's the first time it, it, it said, this is officially okay. 753 A.D., that's some time after the Bible was long written. Sprinkling and pouring is not a biblical mode of baptism. You don't, you're not being buried and coming back up out of the water, which is the analogy that we are reading about right now. <clears throat> it's, the, it's in the powerful working of God. The water is not holy. It's not, there's nothing special about the water. You can be baptized in a creek, in a river, in a swimming pool. The water, there's nothing special about the water. It's about the submission to Jesus Christ and the symbolic nature of I am submitting to him and someone else is doing the act where they're putting you underwater, having my old self buried, and I come up new. Don't forget that analogy. It's very biblical. And it's the powerful working of God. So when you come up, you are new. And we'll, we'll talk more about this at another time. But this is the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. He can bury your old self and raise you new. That's the baptism analogy, and that's why we do it. Okay, I hope you're tracking with me, because what I'd like to do is take you to some more passages that tell us the same thing. Romans chapter 6, also written by Paul, verses 3 and following. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what he's talking about, walking the walk. And if you want to walk in the newness of life, you have to bury the old self in Christian baptism and rise anew. This is not a new concept. This concept has been around for a long time. First century Christians knew all about it because God inspired people to preach about it. It's more than that. There's only one person in the Bible who didn't need to be baptized. Who was that? Jesus. Yeah, he's the only person that has actually walked the planet that didn't need to be baptized, and he still did it. So let's look at that in Matthew chapter 3, and starting with verse 15. But Jesus answered, let it be so for now, for in this way we shall do all that God requires. So John agreed. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, then heaven was opened up opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and lighting on him. That's symbolic, by the way. Then a voice said from heaven, this is my own dear Son, with whom I am pleased. That's the good news translation. There's only two times where God did this. Once was at the transfiguration, and earlier at this baptism. 
God looked at his son and said, yeah, that's my son. And I am very pleased. You want him to feel that way about you? Baptism. The symbolism of the spirit descending on him is significant. Let me give you another passage. Acts chapter 2 with verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Nothing. You're, you already believe, so you're good. I'm sorry, let me read it right. It said, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Anybody that the Lord will call to himself needs to repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. Did you catch that? And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit, not manifestations of the Holy Spirit. It's significant to note the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. See the symbolism? And in the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter tied it all together and preached this. Let me give you another passage, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what if you don't? What if you don't get baptized? And you don't put on Christ. You understand this, don't you? It's pretty simple. It's not a new concept. It's biblical throughout the New Testament. I'm not making it up. But there are a lot of people and a lot of churches that like to argue. So, what we've learned about baptism. Here you go. First of all, go ahead and click that, please. By doing it, we bury our old self and rise anew, beginning our new life in Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Second, Jesus said it is something everyone should do in order to to become righteous. Matthew chapter 3 verses 15 to 17. Third, it follows repentance is for forgiveness of sins and comes with the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Acts 2:38. Fourth, we clothe ourselves with Jesus as we are baptized. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. And then the last thing is similarly to the old covenant practice of circumcision Baptism sets his people apart as they rise anew. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And that is that other piece that we don't need to miss. Circumcision made distinguishable the, the men of God in the Old Covenant. Baptism makes distinguishable the people of God in the world today. Does that make sense? That's what we've learned so far with Scripture. So there's a question that comes up. Someone might ask, and this is a kind of a common question, you'll see, Pastor, are you saying baptism is necessary for salvation? I put that in quotations because that was asked of me right between those doors on a Sunday morning. Are, Pastor, are, are you saying baptism is necessary for salvation? And I'll tell you my answer. Listen carefully. Ready? No. 
The Bible is. I'm not seeing baptism as, I'm not going to say baptism is necessary for salvation. I'm not saying that. I'm saying your Bible says that. And I just could agree with it. God says it. I'm not saying it. God does. And people don't like it. People just, people get upset. People do this. Even though I say, well, your Bible says, my Bible says this, what does yours say? And people will do this. I know what I was taught. I know what my parents said. I know what my preacher said. I know what that book said. I, I know what the televangelist said. I know what my neighbor said. I know what the Sunday school teacher said. I know what I believe. So I close my Bible, and I don't want to hear it anymore. Or are you the kind of Christian that opens it up and goes, what? It says what? You see, you can't go wrong believing this. Not my words. These words. Okay. <clears throat> now, let's look again. Here are the words. Uh, here's the, what we've learned about baptism. Just wanted to give it to you again. We're not going to go over it, but there you go. There's the references. That's what your Bible says, what my Bible says. It is not a new concept. This is not something that I'm trying to push on you. This is not something that I, the, your preacher believes and the elders don't. This is what the Bible says. It doesn't even matter. If I'm up here preaching to you something other than what the Bible says, shame on me. This is what the Bible says. Okay, so now the question comes up. Well, what about the thief on the cross? I mean, Pastor, you, you brought it up with that. You, you said a friend of yours, well-intentioned, posted this on social media. What about the thief on the cross? You know, the, all those, those little pieces of bitterness that were mixed in there. He didn't even, couldn't even fold his hands to pray. In fact, there's really no evidence that he did pray. What about the thief on the cross? What about that? Let me, let me explain something right up front. This is a fundamentally flawed question. You can post that up there so they can read it. This is a fundamentally flawed question because it illustrates a failure to comprehend the most rudimentary fundamental of Christianity. Are you ready for this? Here it is. Salvation only comes by means of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? Do all of you believe this? Salvation comes by means of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the most fundamental thing in Christianity when you're talking about salvation, is it not? Okay, just want to make sure. So when someone asks the question, what about the thief on the cross, there's a little bit of ignorance there. Think about it. So the answer is, for the thief on the cross, there was no salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because it hadn't happened yet. There was no death, burial, and resurrection. There was no salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most fundamental principle of salvation. It hadn't happened yet. So if you have somebody who wants to keep talking about the thief on the cross, well, yeah, well, the thief on the cross, thief on the cross, thief on the cross, that's what they do. They think they've solved it, and they're basically just shutting their brain off. 
If you have that, then ask them questions like, okay, well, what about Elijah? Who, you know, was taken up in a miracle. There he went. He's gone. What about him? He wasn't baptized either now, was he? Uh-huh. And guess what? He didn't even believe in Jesus because Jesus hadn't come yet. But, but is Elijah with God? Well, according to Scripture, he is. You can bring up others, Moses, Abraham, whoever. Before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there was no salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is a basic, rudimentary, fundamental principle of salvation in Christianity. That is the one piece, if you, if you're, you don't want to miss any part of Christianity, that's the part you don't want to miss. We've been talking about it two weeks ago, unraveling the mystery. Salvation only comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Anything before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not under the new covenant. Hebrews 10 explains, until there's a death, the will cannot be put into effect. And he goes on to explain, the Hebrew writer, that Jesus had to die for the will of God to be put into effect. So you understand, and I want to emphasize this, salvation only comes by means of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So the question about the thief on the cross goes to incredible ignorance. He could not be saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because it hadn't happened yet. So there was no need for a baptism. Neither was there for Elijah or Moses or Abraham because there was no salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus until there was a death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter put it together on the day of Pentecost when he preached, and they were cut to the heart, and they didn't know what to do after they were already believers. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, God's salvation plan is not limited to or narrowed down to baptism, but our passage today and all the other passages we looked at clearly tell us You can't leave it out. Jesus said to do it. And if you want to tell me that you don't need to be baptized, you got to get a black marker and mark out a whole lot of your New Testament. Okay. We'll go to the next slide. Just click on it. It'll be automatic. So we do have a class on Thursday night. If you want to know more and feel like you can have some more interactive time where you can ask questions. We'll flesh this out a little bit more in the whole sovereign salvation plan that includes all the other elements that would be hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, then baptism, and then living the Christian life. All of this will go over in part of our class on Thursday night. If you can't make it to the night class and you would prefer a morning class, we have a sign-up sheet over there on the table just outside And I would like you to sign up so I know how many is coming on Thursday night. And if you want to, if you need a daytime thing, tell me. So, and maybe get together with others who need a daytime thing. We'll make it happen. Want to help you out as much as we can, but it'll be a good class introducing you to CKCC and basic Christianity stuff as well. So, now let's look 
at the last part of our text, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and following. And you who were dead in your trespasses, because you're baptized now, and, you've, and you did it for the right reason, and you're forgiven of your sins, you're, you died in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, where you were before, you were hanging on to the flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that analogy. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what he did on the cross. This might come as a shock to you because it sounds like I must live in some really rough neighborhoods or something, but on five different occasions, I have had to disarm people that had firearms five different times. I'll share one of them because it fits. So I got a phone call. I don't remember. It was something like two in the morning. And I told Stephanie, I said, look, I'm going to go I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over there, and if I'm not back within this time, you need to call 911 and send people. So I went to my friend's house. Now, when I got to the door, normally you get to the door, and these little obnoxious dogs, I mean tiny little dogs, just start yelping. Well, I get to the door, and no dogs were yelping. In fact, the door was cracked open. That was weird. So I knock on the door, and the door opens. No dogs. I don't, all I see is a light. You can see all the way to the end of the house, there was a light in the back. And then he turned, and he turned out of the shadows, and he had a pistol in his hand. He was dressed in his military uniform, and he walked toward me. And I said, why are you wearing your military uniform? He's been out of the military for a long time. He'd been drinking. And he said, don't make fun of my uniform. Then he took the gun and he pointed it at me and he put it in different places on my chest and my head. He cocked it. And he said, as he cocked it, he said, parishioner calls pastor. Pastor's concerned, so he drives over. Pastor shows up and enters the home without the knowledge or permission of the homeowner. And I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember all the details of exactly how he said it, but he's got a story. And he said, so the homeowner shoots his pastor and realizes what he's done, then shoots himself. So he's got this murder-suicide thing all planned out. My conversation with him was very interesting, and I definitely don't remember all of it. But I do remember telling him that I was not afraid of death. I wasn't concerned about my soul but I am concerned for his. And he proceeded to tell me he was okay. And I said, really? Going out like this is going to keep you good with God? And that triggered something in his head and ultimately ended up with me not only having his gun in my hand, but all the other guns in the house in the trunk of my vehicle until he got help, got past his alcoholism. I tell you that story because it's a cool story and it captivates you and it just pulls you in. But let me tell you, there's a greater story than that because Jesus has disarmed the enemy at the cross. The enemy that thinks he's got you when he discourages you from attending church that Sunday morning where you just felt like rolling over and going back to sleep. Or when he 
discourages you from keeping on doing what God wants you to do and you just want to quit. Or that enemy that discourages you when he gets your family arguing with you and you get really down. Or when that enemy discourages you and takes, makes you think you have no time for Bible study or Bible reading or prayer. Whatever the enemy is trying to do, and G- Jesus has the power, demonstrated that. He demonstrated it at the cross by completely disarming them when they thought they had killed God in the flesh. That wasn't the end of the story. That was God's plan. He allowed that to happen because we needed it. And that is why we're baptized, because we want access to the grace of God. We submit to what His Word says. Not anything we can really do except submit to His Word. And that includes that peace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word that is so powerful. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us and your sovereignty. Thank you for showing us that your word is the final authority. And may we adhere to it no matter what any preacher says, no matter what any other authority might say. May you be the final say in each of our lives. Lord, I lift up to you each individual that is here I ask that you would give them the motivation to read your word for themselves and follow it. May you be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.